0: Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to, to take them and turn near the end and then look ahead a little bit from the end and you'll eventually get to 1 Peter. It's a letter from the Apostle Peter to churches that are scattered throughout Asia. And I want to remind you of what this letter is about before we jump in this morning. It starts off by telling the church, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This book is a book about hope. It's a book extolling all that God has done through Jesus, particularly in His resurrection, that gives those who trust in Jesus living hope. The defining mark of a Christian is that they have trusted God in such a way that He has transformed their life. They have been born again and given an unexplainable hope in Christ. That hope then translates into a new identity, a new way of viewing the world, a new way of being in the world. And in chapter 2, he explains that for us. He tells us your new identity, who you all are, is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. That you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so together, He has made us a chosen race, a new race on this planet, in this world. We are different from other nationalities, you might say. We are a royal priesthood. We are different from commoners. We are royal, and we are set apart to be priests for God. We are a holy nation. We have a different allegiance than other people do. We are people defined first and foremost by belonging to God. And so as you look around this room, you look around this room at people who have been redefined by the new birth they receive when they trust Christ. This new birth gives them a living hope and changes them into God's people. And so, looking around, that is the new identity. But when you look outside, there is yet another way of looking at this identity – He continues in, in verse 10 and 11. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. The way that you look to the world, the way that you look as you turn outward, is that you are a sojourner and an exile. You are a stranger and an alien. You don't belong. You don't belong here in the world, but you belong to God. There's this beautiful new identity that God has given His people. And it's an identity... That faces both directions. When you look in, there's a new identity. We are now God's people. When you look out, there's a new identity. You are exiles and sojourners. And this new identity then plays out in the choices that you make day in and day out throughout your life. And that's what our text is about this morning. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. So if you want to look ahead, that's just a brief review. But you look ahead at 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning verse 8 you'll see that this new identity plays out in both directions both internally and externally both in community and outward toward others so he says finally all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so here we have this text that tells us about the life choices, the direction, the things that we uh, do in this world, and they are different than they would be if we did not have this new identity. Or to say it another way, <coughs> we are presented this morning in this text with a choice about what the good life really is. What is... The good life. Now, I had a I had a a remarkable privilege yesterday to go to the funeral of my third grade teacher. Now, my third grade teacher, I, I went to school in Montana and she ended up moving to Portland and passed away out here, so I was uh, close enough to get to go to her funeral. And in 1970, when I was in third grade, she was in a Bible study with my mom and came to faith in Christ. And it changed her life, and it changed her son's life, and it had ripple effects for, really, uh, ever since. And she was uh, never... Wealthy, She had a hard childhood. She had a hard marriage. She moved out here with a friend uh, after her husband passed away. And she simply loved people and uh, wanted other people to know Jesus and invested her life in uh, missions. Supporting missionaries, praying for them, and... Uh, It was a terrific funeral yesterday. And I was reflecting on the things that people said about her, reflecting on my own experience with her many, many years ago. And I also had in view another woman this same week. Uh, Some of you, maybe some of you, maybe none of you, that would be great if none of you, saw the Golden Globes this week. But Michelle Williams, beautiful actress, given the Golden Globe and was holding it uh, and making her speech, letting the world know that she couldn't be there, holding this trophy if she had not, in her words, exercised a woman's right to choose. She made this speech while... She was several months pregnant, ironically. And I realized that just thinking about those two women and the others that, of course, they represent, that I was faced with a choice about what I think is the good life. What is is the life that I really, really want? On the one hand, here's this actress who is everything that the world says you should want. She's beautiful, she's wealthy, she's, uh, famous, honored, the whole thing. And I thought, is that really the kind of life I'm after? And then there's my third grade teacher who died in relative obscurity, yet on her deathbed in the hospital, according to to her friends, forced the people who came to visit her to sing in her hospital around her bed and to pray and to take a picture. And I have to think, there really are two ways. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because most of us think in terms... Of both ways. Is there not a way that we can have it all? That we can really go after what the uh, what the world says is a good life and still have the good life in Christ? And what I'm going to show you is that really those are two very distinct ways. And you are going to have to choose. And so now that we're in basically halfway through First Peter, he puts the choice directly in front of us about the good life. And so he says, finally, all of you, this is, a, this is a choice that all of you are going to have to make. You're all going to have to come to grips with am I going to try and have everything, have it all live for the, uh, the fame and the riches and the trophies and all of that, or am I going to live the quiet life that God invites me into. He says, finally, all of you, all of you are going to have to have that kind of choice. And then what he does first is he addresses this internal view, this identity that we have as God's chosen people, chosen nation, royal priesthood, holy um, uh, nation, all of that. And he says, first thing you need is unity of mind. The second thing you need is sympathy. The third thing, brotherly love. The fourth thing, a tender heart. And finally, a humble mind. These words are terrific words. I, I love each one of them. Be of one mind with the rest of the people who are God's people. Sympathy is a compound word means suffer together. Brotherly love, of course, doesn't need explanation. Love people as though they were family. Have a tender heart. Literally, have good, the the literal translation of this in Greek would be, have good innards toward one another. Or good feelings. And then have a humble mind. Now, it's easy for us to talk about those five things, really. But they're a challenge. Because one of the things that I find is I find very quickly that I disagree with people. And when I disagree with people, I don't have the best sympathy toward them. And there is sort of this snowball effect, isn't there? I don't feel so much like I really want to be part of their family. My heart is not tender toward them and my mind not humble. I just was... Uh, Somebody came up the other night and uh, told me some things that we as a church could do better. Now, that is, that is clearly a euphemism that some of you might recognize. It is a way of pastorally saying some people pointed out ways that we were doing it wrong. Things that I was doing wrong. Right? And my first reaction was, oh, here it comes. And then my second reaction was, this is this is my sibling here. This person loves the church of Jesus like I love the church of Jesus. They are pointing this out because it needs to be pointed out. And they're right. And so all of these things came into play the other night when I was listening to this thinking, Thank you, Lord that somebody had the courage... Now, don't all of you get courage at once after this? <laughs> that somebody had the courage to come up and help me do this better for the sake of the church. Because that's who we are. This is a church of Jesus and we're in it together. And he says then... Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is a community of forgiveness. The, the boundaries or the definitions about what it means to be Christians is that you are forgiven. That the guilt that you carry so long is by God taken away. So that when someone else hurts you, You are a person now of forgiveness. And you can let that go. And so instead of repaying evil for evil, perhaps even as they deserve, on the contrary now, you bless them. On the contrary, you bless them and you actively do something good for them. Okay, yeah, that might be a good translation. A blessing. You are pursuing good, their good. And then he says this For to this you were called. If you're called to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, if you are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, then you are called to forgive. And to this you were called so that you might literally inherit the blessing the blessing is inherited by those who forgive those who have been transformed so that they're no longer returning evil for evil but rather blessing now i don't have to stop very long some of you are some of you already have somebody's name in the back of your mind some of you already know who needs to be forgiven some of you, with a little reflection, like I'm stopping to do right now, some of you can figure this out. Is, because in a minute we're going to talk about a clear conscience, having a clear conscience so that you have forgiven those that need to be forgiven. To this you were called so that you might inherit the blessing. So, who is it, maybe they're in this room, maybe they're not, that you need to forgive? That's the call of God on your life. And then, he goes on to say, he goes on to quote Psalm 34. I think it's Peter's favorite psalm. And it's interesting to think of an apostle of Jesus Christ, a writer of the New Testament, who has a favorite verse, right? Or a favorite chapter in the Old Testament. You don't really get that everywhere. But he goes back to Psalm 34 several times in this letter. And here he says, he he quotes it. That's why there's quotation marks here. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. This is where he puts the choice to us. Do you want the good life that Christ offers? Or are you looking for some other kind of life? If you're looking for the life that Christ offers, then this is what you do. If you love life and you want to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Isn't that interesting? That the first thing that it talks about when it talks about the good life is what you say? Again, I, this, this is just an overgeneralization. I'm not picking on anyone. But I'm guessing... That some of you, anyway, are like me. And you say things to people that you regret. You say things to people that you know you shouldn't say. And you say them anyway. And then you're in a mess. That's what he's talking about right here. It's that mess that messes up the good life. And the very first thing that he says about this good life is, guard your tongue. Be careful about what you say. I am am really quite concerned that so many of us are pretty loose about what we say. What we say is crude. What we say is unkind. What we say is about somebody who's not here. And we don't guard our tongue. That's the first characteristic of this good life, is what you say. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Then it's what you say and then it's what you do. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's interesting that there are those two parts of the good life. There's the part that you say and there's the part that you do. Let him turn away from evil and do good. That's a theme again throughout First Peter to say, Let the people of God, this holy race, this chosen race, this holy priesthood, let them be known for their good works. For actually doing good, for doing something. Seek peace and pursue it. Be the kind of people who pursue peace. In other words, you're not the person who hangs back and says, well, if they're upset, they need to come to me. Because really, that's how a lot of us deal with conflict, isn't it? I'm not going to make the first move. Not on me. Here, Peter tells us, it is on you. It is on you to make the first move. As much as it lies within you, live at peace with everybody. So this is good life turn away from evil do good? Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, he's still quoting from Psalm 34, letting us know that the blessings and the promises of the covenant people of God throughout the ages belong to the church. And that the Lord is paying attention to what you do. He's paying attention to your prayers. Paying attention to your actions. And He's paying attention if you do evil. And so I want to encourage you, for God's sake, do right. For God's sake, do good. And so he has this, this internal view where you're looking at each other. You're looking at the community of God's people saying the good life is lived together. The good life is a life free of bitterness and full of forgiveness. This good life is lived by going after people to pursue peace and to do them good, to bless them, and not to speak evil. That's the good life. It's interesting how isolating the world's view of the good life is. It isolates you in work. It puts you alone. It makes you relocate from your friends and your family. in order to pursue wealth or opportunity or whatever it is. When, in effect, here we are in community living the good life together. That's what he says. So, first of all, the good life is a life lived in community with other people. Then, but but it's not lived in an isolated community. Let me say that. It's lived in community, but it's not a community that has nothing to do with other people and huddles up and keeps other people away. Rather, it's lived in community with a view to people who aren't in the community already. It's lived as those who believe in Jesus with a view to people who don't believe in Jesus already. And so, now he turns... Outward. Looking at the good life. And he says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? If you're eager to do what is good, he said, it doesn't make any sense for somebody to come after you. And generally, they won't. I think that's the way that Peter's talking about Generally, they're not going to come against you if you're doing good. So, get after it. Go do good out in the world. Find ways to represent Jesus out there by doing good. They said, but on the exception, this is the way that I would treat it, on the exception that somebody does come after you, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. So all, all the more reason. So go do good because they won't come after you if, they do, if you're doing good. And then... Go do good because if they do, then there's blessing for you from God. So he gives two reasons why you ought to go act in a loving way outside of the community. And then he says, have no fear of them nor be troubled. Now it's interesting, the fear has had a big Big place here in the the letter of 1 Peter. I think because fear has a big place in our lives. Fear is one of the things that keeps us in front of our TV instead of going out and doing good. Fear is one of those things that keeps us quiet instead of speaking up and representing Jesus. Fear is... And, and we're afraid of suffering, which is exactly what he's talking about. We're afraid someone's going to make fun of us or someone's going to talk bad about us. Someone's going to laugh at us. And so he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now here, he pulls out another quotation from the Old Testament that is worth noting. He says, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. But the Lord of hosts, Him you should honor as holy. You'll see this in just a moment again. But let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And so this perspective is that this community of faith fears only God. We've seen this before. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See, no one's pretending that living a life as a follower of Jesus is easy. No one's going to pretend that it will all be a bed of roses and there's nothing that might happen to you that's uncomfortable. But, you don't have to be afraid. Rather, choose to be afraid of God. That's what he's saying. Fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom after all. It's the place to begin the Christian life is by revering God. And so don't be afraid of them. Rather, fear the Lord. And so now, you remember, it just said, set apart or honor the Lord. Peter now substitutes Jesus for the Lord. He tells us, in a way, by manner of substituting Jesus or Christ's name in here, that Christ is God. And he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Same language that we just saw in Isaiah chapter 8. So you're you're going to set him apart as holy. You're going to realize, I have an audience. Of one. It doesn't matter what your pastor thinks. It doesn't matter what even the other people in this room think or your family. What matters is what God thinks. That's what it means to set apart or or, uh, honor Christ as holy. It's to realize that you have an audience of one. And when you do, be prepared to make a defense. to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you. And so, with a view to living toward those that are outside, you need to live in such a way, live with such hope that you get asked about it. See, this is really interesting because I think the breakdown in the witness of the church, the breakdown in the reputation of the church toward those who are outside, is that it is unclear what Christians are actually hoping for. It is a hope problem. That's why I started at the very beginning of the book with being born again to a living hope. And what, what we're trying to do at New Life Church Is to create people so resolved to hope exclusively in Christ that people are going to have to say, what are you thinking? When you get the question, what are you thinking? Then by all means, be ready to answer that question. But the problem isn't that you don't know how to answer the question. The problem is that you're not hoping in such a way that... People can distinguish your hope from someone else's hope. It is unclear and I see this is this is the issue. It is unclear whether your hope is different than Michelle Williams' hope. And so what he's doing in this text is instructing us how do you live in a way that distinguishes you as the people of God who are exiles and sojourners who have no place in this world. Who have no power in this world. Who have no leverage in this world. That is what the Christian life is like. When you live in a way where you have no leverage and no power, and yet still have hope, that's when people are going to ask you about it. D.A. Carson, it's, it's worth me stopping to tell you this story. Because D.A. Carson tells a story uh, about a, a missionary doctor who was uh, in the Middle East, and he was treating a woman who had a deep gash on her arm, and he was, uh, he, he was scrubbing with antiseptic and was trying to get uh, it cleaned out, And he was explaining to her what he was doing, and she thought about it for a moment, and she said, Yes, clean my arm, but my heart is dirty too, and it needs to be clean. And of course, this missionary doctor had, you know, he had gone to school, and he could have been prepared with his apologetic against Islam. Well, there is no sacrifice to take away sin in Islam. Allah will only accept you if you obey Him. And He could have launched in there. But instead, He said, You know what? My heart was very dirty too but I met somebody who could take away that dirt. Would you like me to tell you about him?" And you see, that's, I think, the kind of answer it's talking about here. Where he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. How different that is than trying to prove people wrong, but rather to come alongside and say, my heart was dirty too but I met somebody that can clean it. Can I tell you about him? And so notice here too that it is not only just like before what you say, it is also what you do and the way in which you do it. You do it with a good conscience so that when people speak evil against you or revile your good behavior, they might be ashamed. See, when you come at them, when you tell them how wrong they are, they're not going to be ashamed. They're going to be defensive. His encouragement here is for you to be so gentle and so respectful and so good with a pure conscience that is full of forgiveness so that when you love that person, and they ask you about your hope, your gentleness will put them to shame. They won't be able to save face after they speak against you. And then he summarizes this. He says this this is the life, the good life that he's talking about. The good life summarized both facing inward and facing outward, is this. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to absorb the pain of doing good than it is to receive pain for doing evil. And then he points out, of course, if that be God's Will. And one of the things that helps us as the people of God when we suffer is to realize that that suffering is part of God's will. It was not God's will to say, oh, someone, someone trusted me. I'm going to make all their problems go away. That's not the will of God. The will of God is, yeah, you will suffer But He knows about it. He is good. He loves you. He is with you in that suffering. And it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so this morning, I commend to you the good life. Jesus, after all, said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. Abundantly. And the good life is a life lived in the community of faith. The life that is involved, sympathetic, loving, with good feelings, forgiving other people who are God's children. It is a life lived toward those who are outside. Engaged for sure. Sure in conversations all the time, in relationships over coffee or dinner, around the water cooler, in the break room, representing Jesus who has given you eternal living hope. And when you make decisions based on that hope that they don't understand based on their hope, They're going to have to figure that out. And you're going to be ready to say, you know what? My heart was dirty too. And I met somebody who could clean it. Would you like me to tell you about him? Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we we are so grateful that You have loved us and that You have sent Jesus that our hearts might be clean, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be free from bitterness toward other people and forgive them. You have put us in a community and called us Your children, called us Your own people. And Father, You've left us in this world so that we might live as Islands of hope, villages that trust in something that we can't see, so that we live differently and we live this good life. God, would You enable us, by Your Spirit, to live this good life, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.